This is the Commission Church Online. Welcome to our podcast. We want to be a church who brings heaven on earth through the word of God and the love of Christ. I pray this week's message blesses you. I want to title my message today, part nine. I want to title the Upside Down Gospel. The Upside Down Gospel. In a few moments, I'll explain as to why I came up with that title. But it was a preacher by the name of Wilbur Reese who once preached a message in which he gave us a listener's guide on, uh, on sermons and uh, how sermons are often rated. Uh, movies are often rated as well. And, uh, and, and he kind of contested that uh, sermons ought to be rated in, in uh, much the same way that movies were rated. And uh, Prince gives us an amazing uh, breakdown and ratings of movies, so I'm not going to do that. But uh, if, if you you know, Wilbur talks about uh, talks about the ratings of sermons, and he says there are different categories. There's the G category or rated sermons that is generally acceptable for everyone. All right, uh, they contain phrases like "Go ye into all the world and smile." or live your best life yet, or what the world needs is peace, motherhood, and fewer taxes. Uh, And sermons such as these are often received with a response of, oh, wasn't that a marvelous sermon? Pastor, preach. Pastor, that was good. Pastor, that was amazing. And everyone loves a good G-rated message because it never offends anybody. And then Wilbur goes on to say there are also PG sermons that are for more mature congregations, and they have mild suggestions for change, and they, you know, they they challenge the listener to transform and change and go through life change, but they're subtle enough to allow the preacher to backpedal and change his meaning if he finds that he has inadvertently offended someone. He's always walking around eggshells. And then there are the R-rated sermons, and this is when the preacher tells it like it is. These usually indicate, you know, these usually are greeted with a, you know, with, with, with not so much of a response as a G-rated sermon would receive, right? They, the pastor has, and uh, usually the, the pastors that venture out and preach these kinds of sermons are pastors that really have an outside source of income and a fairly healthy self-image. Okay, and sermons like these are often followed up with comments that are disgruntled that, you know, people are like, oh man, that was disturbing or that was controversial in nature. How can he do that? And these sermons definitely aren't intended for everyone, only for those who wish to be challenged in their spiritual walk. And then he says that our X-rated sermons, and these are the explosive ideas of the kind that got the prophet Amos that got him to run out of town and, and the prophet Jeremiah thrown into a well. All right, this, these are the kinds of sermons. When you preach an X-rated sermon, you preach them with your suitcase packed and a U-Haul truck ready for you to move out of town, okay? And the comments that you receive from this would be shocking. How could he preach that message? That was poor taste. But then it's also received by people that want to really hear what the truth of the gospel is. And I want to break it to you this morning. Jesus was the master of X-rated sermons. And the Sermon on the Mount is the mother of all X-rated sermons. 
oh, pastor, no, I think you got it wrong, pastor. I think you're talking about something else. I think you're talking about the time where he flipped the tables and he got upset and angry. I don't, I don't think we're talking about the same message here. No, 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 I don't want you to get me wrong here. I was, I'm very careful in telling you that the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, as some of us would, would, would know it, is one of the most X-rated sermon that people will object to, that people will walk away from, that people will say, I don't want anything to do with this. If this is what Christian living means, I don't want to live the Christian life. It's one of my favorite passages of scriptures, don't get me wrong. It's a passage that challenges me every single time I read it, not just as a pastor, but as a believer of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus, it's what God Jesus kicked out of synagogues and God Jesus hated by his own people. It's because of this message that he wanted to make sure everybody heard before he started any other ministry that he ever did. You know, it was Mark Twain that was asked once if he found the Bible hard to understand and it was Mark Twain who responded and said he wasn't really bothered by the parts of the Bible that he couldn't understand as much as he was bothered by the parts that he could understand. I want to contest this morning that if you listen to a message on a Sunday morning and if it leaves you unhinged, if it leaves you unchanged, if it leaves you unbothered, if it leaves you content and happy and satisfied, and if it leaves you in your comfort zone and you walk out of this place saying, oh, that was a good word, that was a good word, I can't wait to come back next Sunday, but it didn't really change something within you, you got to ask yourself, if the message was strong enough to go into fertile ground or if the ground was not fertile enough for it to go and do a work. See, if we took the Sermon on the Mount at face value, it would not only change the church, it would change the world. And today and over the next few weeks, as I break this passage down, I want you to understand that this message that Jesus preached before he preached everything else or anything else, before he healed people, before he touched people, before he restored people, before he cast out demons and raised the dead, it was this message in its core that Jesus wanted each one of us to understand. It's this preaching that started off that got him crucified. And I can't tell you how important this message is for you and for me. And oftentimes, man, we try to soften the blows and turn the Sermon on the Mount into a G-rated sermon or a PG-rated sermon or even an R-rated sermon when it's supposed to be a sermon that cuts through your heart and has to change you from the inside out to make you who Christ wanted you to be. Over the last few weeks and over the, last, the course of the last eight weeks, we have been introduced to Matthew's coverage of the birth of Jesus He's introduced us to John the Baptist. He's narrated the account of the baptism, the temptation of Jesus. And last week, we watched the first disciples being called. Jesus has begun his preaching and teaching ministry in Galilee. And like we said last Sunday, large crowds of people, fans have gathered around him, have started celebrating him. He has earned crowds. He has earned a fan base. People are watching from a distant because, distance because something extraordinary has happened. For 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has spoken once again. This is the first message as recorded in the Gospels that God is speaking to his people after a 400 year of silence. 
This is exciting. This is amazing. What people want to hear is, man, I'm here for you. This is going to be a good message. It's going to be uplifting. It's going to be life-changing. It is going to be life-changing, but it's going to be something that people don't expect to hear. Matthew chapter 5, we're introduced to what's referred to as the Beatitudes. And Jesus is calling us into his own attitude, into, into us submitting, submitting ourselves to what he calls the kingdom of God. I want to break this down before I get into this passage. What is the meaning of the word beatitude? The Latin word that, that we use to get the word beatitudes from is this word beatuto, which means blessed. It means blessed. And the literal Greek mean the, the literal Greek word for it is makarios. Makarios, which means blessed. It means flourishing. It means good. It means happy. It means a blessed life. There are eight steps that Matthew is going to take us through that present eight steps to mature as, as Christians, as believers. There are eight things that we ought to do in order for us to move from where we are into where God wants us to be. It's broken up into two categories. The first category is four of the first ones, where is the preparation of our character towards God, where God wants to prepare us. God wants to mold our character. God wants to shape our character. God wants us to learn certain things. And the last four are the presentation of our character that God has taught us to the world outside. Four of these are internal and preparational, and four of these are external and expressional. And here's where we pick up from Matthew chapter 5, turning your Bibles to verse number 1 and verse, uh, chapter number 5, sorry, Matthew chapter number 5, verse 1 to 4. You can follow along as I read, the verses are on the screen as well as on your phones and all your Bibles, and, and I'm, I'm reading from the ESV, the Bible says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is amazing. I want to break this down. Verse number one, seeing the large crowds, he went up on the mountains. Now, we talked last week about the difference between fans and followers of Jesus Christ. It takes a lot to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is about to go up the mountain, see who comes with him. And the Bible is very clear that, that as soon as he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, secluded himself. And the Bible doesn't say the crowds followed him. Seeing the crowds, he decided to detach himself from the fans to his followers. And the Bible follows that up with saying, and his disciples came to him. Now, I want to be very, very careful when we study the Sermon on the Mount. See, the Sermon on the Mount is not for everybody. The Sermon on the Mount is not principles that everybody and every person out there in the world is ought to live by. The Sermon on the Mount, or these Beatitudes that Jesus is about to teach the church, is strictly for Christ followers who are willing to risk it all to get closer to Jesus Christ. If you want to grow in your, in your life, in your, in your faith, if you want to grow in your life with Jesus, if you want to go closer to Jesus, these principles that we're going to share over the, over the course of the next few weeks are principles that you and I, if we understand and buy into and live by, these are principles that I guarantee will change your life forever. 
He pulls his disciples close to him. And the first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Jesus is in a seated posture. I, wanna, I, I bring that up because it would be very traditional of the custom back in the day where the Jewish custom was that the rabbi who was about to give an official teaching would sit down and all the students that were about to learn would stand up. All right, we're going to practice that right now. Okay, I'm going to sit and y'all are going to stand. Y'all ready? No, just kidding, just kidding. I love y'all like, Pastor, come on now. I can't stand for like one hour. That's what would happen. Jesus would stand up. When he wanted, just wanted to talk to people, but when he, when he wanted to teach, he would sit down and people would be engrossed and, and people would be like, it's one way of making sure that people don't sleep during your message. But he got up. That's why we still talk about a professor who has a chair in a certain department in a university. It's taken after that. It would, it would indicate the importance that Jesus placed on what he was about to say. And as he sat, Matthew tells us the disciples come to him and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone say blessed. Man, the, the meaning of this word blessed, this, like I said, this Latin, we get it from the word beatido, which means blessed, makarios, which means human flourishing and blessed. And Jesus uses this word blessed nine times because of how important this word is. It means one who has received a gift. It means a one who has received a favor from God. This word blessed, a lot of scholars will tell you it means happy. Now, I don't want to just restrict it to that. But there is a lot of happiness involved in this, in this one word. Filled with joy, filled with happiness. But I titled this sermon, Upside Down, because of how upside down the gospel is that Jesus is about to teach his people. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, guys, if you're poor in the spirit, you are blessed. The world would tell you, if you're poor, you are not blessed. Am I talking to somebody? That's what the world will tell you. If you don't have something, poor means you lack something. You lack money. You lack resources. And, and, and blessed is just the opposite of that. But we're not talking about money here. We're not talking about finances here. We're not talking about the lack of, of resources here. The Bible says those who, are those who are poor in spirit are blessed. Who are these people that are poor in spirit? I want to answer this question. People who recognize their own spiritual poverty are, are who Jesus is referring to and saying, you are blessed. If there's anybody here that recognizes and realizes that we are spiritually poor, God is looking at you and saying, you are blessed. It has nothing to do with money. This is the paradoxical gospel, this upside-down gospel. To be blessed, you have to be poor. To be anointed, you have to be poor. And I believe he starts this on purpose. He starts this off on purpose when he says you have to be poor in order to be blessed because it's impossible to start a journey with God unless you're poor in spirit. Unless you lack something in your spirit, you wouldn't seek for something. And, and, and Jesus is saying, man, if you want to get closer to me, there are certain things you have to abandon. There are th certain things that you have to give up. There are certain sacrifices that you have to make. There are certain people that you have to let go of. There are certain things that you're holding on to that you have to let go of. He says, man, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, there are three kinds of poor that, 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 that we know of in the Bible. When you have nothing, absolutely nothing, when you have zero, 
That's when you're a destitute. It means you have zero. You have nothing, absolutely nothing in this world. You're a destitute. And then your category number two, where the, the Bible talks about this, and, and the Greek word used is the word penyes, which means the working poor. These poor people were the working poor. It's the ones that lived paycheck to paycheck. It's the one that had money, right? But they just barely had money to scrape right through. They had money to slide through. They had money to pay for the bare essentials. And by the end of the day, they were done. There are probably people sitting in this room that, go, that, that are probably in that category. There's, there's some of you up that probably were in that category at some time in your life. There are students. Any students in this place? Y'all know what I'm talking about. I remember when I was a student. Man, I was just barely getting through. And I was like, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Right? There are seasons in life that you go through. And then the third category is this category called tohos, which is the begging poor. Like your, your physical disability that you're going through makes it impossible for you to have a wage. And that's a big problem. And you would see this, right? In the first century Israel, you would see a lot of people that fell in this category, the begging poor category. There was these people with a can, with change inside of their cans, and they would just keep rattling it like this. A metal can just like this, and they would just keep rattling it like this. You're like, stop already, pastor. It can get annoying, but the words they would use is, have pity on me, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. They would shake it and say, alms for the poor. Give me something. I can't do it on my own. They can't. Their, their basic needs were not met because, because they couldn't physically able. So somebody else, in the goodness of somebody else's heart, fulfilled the need that they had. I need you to listen very closely. To be poor in the spirit is, is, is to this, this level that we're talking about, this tohos level, this begging poor level that you and I need to get to spiritually where we are depleted of our own strength. We are depleted of our own understanding. We are depleted of our own resources and depleted of our own wisdom to the point where we're like, God, can you take complete control of this situation? Like, like, to be poor in the spirit is more than being humble. It's like comparing myself to the perfection of Jesus and saying, compared to Jesus, man, I am nothing. I am lacking in every area ever. What he's essentially saying is blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. The spiritually, you know, the people that just say, man, I have nothing left. Like, I am coming out of nothing, and I need the grace of somebody else. I need the love of somebody else. I need the compassion of somebody else to fulfill the needs that I have. Am I talking to somebody here? So many of us approach Jesus from the other two perspectives where you're, you're coming to God. I'm like, you know what, Lord? As, as long as I get from paycheck to paycheck, and when I get really desperate is when I seek your face. God's like, no, I want you from day one to seek my face with a telhos kind of thirst. Do you feel the desperation in your spirit? Do you feel the bankruptcy in your heart? For so many of us, it's a, man, I, I not only do not measure up, but I'm this miserable beggar standing by this king. It's not because of what we've done. It's not because of any merit that we have, but it's a, I am helpless, God. I am crippled in my heart. I am crippled in my spirit. I can't keep going on, Jesus. I've tried it on my own, but at the end of myself, I'm asking you for help. Have mercy on me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you are poor in spirit sometimes? where you're depleted, where you don't have the energy to keep going. 
And you think, man, that is a bad thing. And God looks at you and says, no, you're in a good place. God is reminding somebody that is spiritually drained, that is spiritually depleted, that you don't have everything together. You're doubting the existence of God. You're doubting even if God loves you, if, if God is on your side and God is reminding somebody that it's when you feel like you're at the end of the rope that I can come in and I can show you goodness. I can show you mercy. I can show you love. I can fill up every void because I am God. Sometimes we get carried away with what we can do. We look at what happens in our life as things that we accomplish ourselves. Have you heard of that woodpecker, the story of the woodpecker who was pecking away at the tree? And out of nowhere, he's just pecking, 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 pecking away. And out of nowhere, this lightning strikes, hits the tree, and the tree splits in two. The woodpecker just flies away right on time. And he stands back and says, look what I have done. But it's when you come to that place where you're like, man, it's not by my own strength. It's not by my own ability. Like everything I have, the job that I have, the success that I have, the, the, the plaudits that I have, the education that I have, the money that I have, it's not because of me. I consider that nothing. If I want to get anywhere with God, I got to completely drain myself of my pride and anything that tells me that I have achieved anything and I am nothing. I want to make myself nothing in the eyes of God. And that's when God looks at you and says, now you are blessed. I'm talking to the temptation inside of us to want to achieve something by our own strength. You know what Paul says? Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. You know how you are blessed spiritually? You're blessed spiritually when you take everything that's going on good in your life, you set it aside and you say, you know what? It's not my own ability. It's not my own doing. I, everything that I have gained, I will count it as a loss, which means you take everything from, that side, from, the, from the gains aside and you say, man, this is gain. I can talk about this. I can, I can tell everybody about this. I have a testimony, but I'm going to put that aside. Why? Because, because of Christ and the light of God's holiness and God's power and God's anointing. I am nothing. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. He says, I count them as garbage. Someone say garbage. That's what he says. He says, it's not by my own strength in order that I might gain Christ. Man, if there's somebody struggling today spiritually to come to that place of spiritual connection with the Lord, having a spiritual connection with the Lord, you're struggling in your faith, you're struggling in your walk, I want to ask you, what are the things that you're holding on to that are probably impeding your relationship with God? What are the things that you are hanging on to for dear life that's not allowing you to meet God on a personal level this morning? God has asked me to teach this, so I'm going to be teaching this this morning. The, the, you know, the, the beautiful example of the poor in the spirit is, is, is this Paul who says, man, I have a great family. I have a great education. I have this great career, and I abandon all of that because my desires for Jesus, my desire for Jesus comes before everything else. And I'm wondering, just wondering, if there are things in our life that we hold of value that could probably take the place of Jesus. And, and, and God is looking at some people and saying, you got to drain yourself. you got to be spiritually poor and come to that place where you say, Jesus, I desperately need you. I need you, Lord. Every hour, I need you. 
Remember that story in the New Testament of that publican and the Pharisee? Jesus tells them this, this story about these two people that are praying and this one guy publicly, he's praying to himself, essentially. He's like, Lord, I do this and I do this and I do this. And I, you remember that? Lord, I tithe and I pray and I faithfully do this and I faithfully, he's essentially praying to himself. Like how many of us do that? Like he's basically reading his spiritual resume to God. Lord, I did this and this. How many of us read our spiritual resume as a way of justifying your ill-doing? And I'm talking to somebody, oh, oh, well, you know, I was all right all week. I don't think this will hurt. I, I, I did everything. I, I did everything I should. But this one thing that I'm about to do, this sin that I'm going to engage in, this sin that I'm about to fall into, it's going to be justified because everything else I did was, I need someone to get this. Oh, I've been coming to work on time all week. I don't think my boss is going to notice if I'm going to be 10 minutes late. Or this idea of the cheat day that we've all come up with. How many of you, like me, seven days of cheat days for you? <laughs> Don't do that. But you know, those of you all who are in a strict diet, you take care of your health, you, you, you watch what you eat. Man, you have a cheat meal. Man, I was good all week, and because of that, I deserve this. Mm. See, so many of us get caught up in that whirlwind. We get caught up in that, in, that, in, in that spiritual world where we're like, man, I've been good, I've been good, I've been doing this and this and this all year, so I deserve a little bit of pleasure. I deserve, and you buy into that lie of the enemy that says you deserve this. Come on. Mm. Isn't that what, what, what the devil told Eve? You deserve this. <laughs> the biggest lie of the enemy is you deserve this. You worked hard for this. There's absolutely no problem. All month you've been striving. You've been working so hard. You've been hearing it from your boss. You've been taking on the pressures of work. Go ahead. Indulge in that thing that you're supposed to indulge in. And that might be spending money. Come on. Am I talking to somebody? It could be spending stuff on things that you don't need, but you want. It could be giving yourself into the sensual desires of the world. Oh, I've, I've kept myself good all week, but you know what? It's not going to hurt. Because I think God will look at the other days that were... It's this deviation of the moral will to do right. To justify what you're about to do based on how good you've been. And there's this guy that's saying, man, I've done this and this and this and this. A little bad can be overshadowed by the good I've done all week. He's like, I'm glad I'm not like the evildoers. I'm glad that I'm not like the party goers. I'm, I'm glad that I'm not doing that and that. Lord, look at that guy. He's, he's on my Instagram feed all day, partying it up like it's no, you know what I'm saying? Like compared to him, I think I'm okay. I'm glad I'm not like those guys. I'm not like those robbers or those tax collectors. I fast, I tithe. He's reading his spiritual resume to God and he's like, Lord, this, that, and the other guy was this tax collector that people hated. He, he extorted money from his own people and he comes into the presence of God. He's literally beating his chest and he's looking at God and saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And you know what Jesus says? Guess who goes back home with a clean heart? The man who asks for forgiveness. He goes back a forgiven man because blessed are the poor in spirits. 
Not the one that has a lot to boast about. Not the one who has a spiritual resume. Man, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't want to know about what did God did in 1995 in your life. I want to know what God is doing today. Come on. Everybody has a testimony. Oh, brother, in 1995, well, this happened to me and this happened to me. And you have the same testimony. Every time I talk to you, you talk about that 1995. What happened yesterday? Come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? You meet those people and they have the same testimony day after day. And God's like, man, what about the doing the new thing? I, behold, I want to do a new. Have you allowed yourself to see the new thing that God has done? But oftentimes the old stuff that you hold on to and you use as a testimony, those old things that you are holding on to for dear life can impede you from experiencing the goodness and the grace and the love and the mercy and the outpouring of God's plan in your life. And today my call to each one of us is let us strive to be people that are poor in spirit, that lay our pride down, that lay our reservations down and look at God and say, God, would you do what only you can do best? Do something new in my life. Do something new in my life. Oof. Poor in spirit is this acknowledgement that I'm spiritually bankrupt. How do I apply this in my life, brother? I believe that there's one thing in these days that will keep people from having a meaningful relationship with God more than anything else, it's pride. It's pride. A proud person would be opposite to someone who is poor in spirit, like the Pharisee that we were talking about. There is no forgiveness and reconciliation unless a person comes to the point where they can say, I'm a sinner before God. And I'm talking to so many of us today. Sonia mentioned that a little earlier. She said, man, gone are the days that we were thronging the altars just wanting to be in the presence of God. Like what happened to those good old days? Is this like more of an act of, man, it convenience or inc like I, 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 it, it breaks my heart to see that. But I'm telling you something, blessings are found and it says blessed are the ones that are, that, that are poor in your spirit. It's found when people humble themselves before God and, and it's, it's available. The churches are going to see that. We're going to see that as a nation when we humble ourselves and say, Lord, we're a sinful nation. We're sinful people. God embraces those who can come into his presence with brokenness in total dependence Say, God, I don't have it all together. I don't. Like, I, I, I fail to understand the need that we have as Christians and believers to walk around like everything's okay. Like, I don't understand that. Why is it okay to walk around and make sure everybody thinks that your life is together? Maybe if I post that picture of my family on Instagram, maybe everybody will think that our family is fine. Maybe if we do this and this and this, maybe if I make that big purchase, if I buy this, maybe I can find my worth in that thing. But may I contest and say, it's okay to come into the presence of God with brokenness because that's what God applauds. 
That's what turns Jesus' head is that woman that stands in the temple and takes the, the very little she has and she's not ashamed and says, God, I have this, but I give it to you, but I'm broken. Would you feel? That's the one that turns the head of Jesus. It's the woman who has been depleted of all her strength and every ounce of blood has flown out of her and she touches the hem of his garment and Jesus stops and looks back and says, who touched me? the one that had it all together that's my Jesus that takes a moment to turn back and look at the disenfranchised he takes a moment to turn around and look at the weak and the broken and the hurting and the crying because those are the ones that grabs heaven's attention gone are the days that we cry in the presence of God gone are the days that we are broken in the presence of God Let's stop holding back the tears, church. We don't need to be strong for anybody. In the presence of God, he's saying, lay your strengths down because I am your strength. Lay your burdens down for I can fill that every void. But we're walking around with burdens. We're walking around with weights. We're walking around because the world is expecting us to have it all together. You're a Christian, so you better have it all together. No, I'm a Christian and hence I am desperately in need of a savior I'm in desperate need of my Jesus who can fill in every void in my life so it's okay it's okay to go into the presence of God and just cry at commission church we're going to make that the norm we're going to make that the norm of, of people that can come into the presence of God and not be questioned after service hey what's going on with your life you went up for prayer what like when is that a taboo to go into the presence of God and be broken? Jesus says, blessed are you. I can sit on my spiritual high horse and say, I got to have it all together. And as long as I have it all together, I'm good. And people might think that I'm a good leader. I'm a good, no, 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 no. There are, there are times of weakness that I go into the presence of God and say, God, I don't have it all together. There are moments that I go to the elders and ask them for prayer. There are moments that I go up to the prayer team and say, pray for me. I am really desperately needing God to move in my life right now. I am weak. This week, I need Jesus. To there are times that I've done that because those are the moments that I know if I can be vulnerable at the cross of Jesus, my Jesus will respond and say, blessed are you, Ashish. Because poverty in the spirit is a true thing. I don't want you to ignore that church. Whew. Help me, Lord. But it's hard. The Bible says, poor in the spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. It's a pure biblical teaching, y'all. Because if it, it's only those who are truly sorry for their sins that will be given the opportunity to enter the kingdom of heaven, this verse is true. It's theologically true. It's a powerful concept that if you and I understand, Jesus will actually begin his Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes with, uh, hey, if you do this, you will see the kingdom of heaven. And the last verse, in verse number 10, you'll see the same thing. The condition condition is hey if you do these things you will see the kingdom of heaven and the sermon on the mount is arranged around the concept of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God which are one and the same 
In Matthew chapter 19, 23 and 24, he uses those words interchangeably. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. He uses it interchangeably. It's the same thing. The kingdom of heaven easily explained refers to God's sovereignty over any person or community that acknowledges him as king. If you are sitting here today and if you have asked Jesus to be the king of your life, the kingdom of heaven is in your heart. I want to repeat that to you. If you have asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and your king, the kingdom of heaven is in you. The kingdom of God can be argued to be the complete rule of, of God over his whole people. But I want, to, I want to remind somebody today, the kingdom of God has always existed. From the creation of God's people to right now, people may choose to reject it or accept it or, or whatever happens. It's always been there. The kingdom of God is today. Everyone who accepts Christ as Savior begins to enter that kingdom of God. So it's applicable today. And the kingdom of God is tomorrow. There will be a time and a day. And nobody knows that. But every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The sky will be rendered open. And Jesus will come back. And the kingdom of God will fill the earth. So it's yesterday, today. And it is going to come. But if we understand this, verse 4, it says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want you to listen carefully. Blessed are those who mourn. Someone say mourn. Now, so many people misinterpret this and say, Oh, this is to do with somebody that has lost a loved one. If you have lost a loved one, this is a message for you. I'm not going to discount that. I pray that this will be an encouragement to you if you have lost a a loved one. I pray that this word will come as a word of encouragement to you. But when Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, they will be comforted. He's actually talking about and he's referring to the first thing that he mentioned about being poor in the spirit. Listen very carefully. After recognizing my spiritual condition, my spiritual depravity, it ought to bring me to grief. If looking at your spiritual condition and depravity, that doesn't bring you to a point of grief, There's something wrong with that equation. Have you ever known someone who was so deep in sin and they knew about it? It's probably you, but but, but wasn't sorry for it after all? Like one who's honest about their spiritual poverty, but who is not moved to godly sorrow? Like you can never understand the fullness of God's grace if you're that person. The Bible says there's comfort in Christ for the man or the woman who mourns because of his or her sin. It's the first attitude that leads to the second attitude. If you are poor in your spirit, it should lead you to a point of saying, man, I I feel so bad for the situation that I am. And I am going to bless it at those who mourn. The word that Christ uses here is the strongest possible word in the Greek language for mourning. This word called pentio. Pentio, which means literally tearing apart of robes and mourning for the lost. That's, that's what it means. Essentially, he's saying, happy are those who are unhappy. Blessed are those who are unhappy. I need us to understand this, y'all. There are different kinds of sorrows. One is a natural sorrow. 
things that bring sadness to the heart. It could be death. It could be sorrow. And for those of y'all who are going through a loss, of the, the, uh, you know, going through a, a, a season where you have lost a loved one and you're going through grief, I don't want to discount your grief. We actually have a great life group for those, who, those of y'all who are going through grief and you can actually share grief in that life group. It's an amazing group that Stanley leads over. He's a chaplain that, that deals with families that have lost loved ones and he's leading that group. Join that group. It's, it's a great place for, for healing to happen. But mourning is natural. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 2, the Bible says, Godly man buried Stephen and mourned. I'm not saying that mourning is not godly. Jesus wept. Abraham wept when Sarah died. David wept when his son Absalom was killed. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, wept over his city. You know, mourning is an act of love. There is natural mourning and there's worldly sorrow. There's natural sorrow, there's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is rooted in regrets. It's rooted in facing the outcomes of our own actions. Natural sorrow brings healing. Worldly sorrow brings death. I need you to listen to this. But the third kind of sorrow is this. It's a godly sorrow. It's, it's the rooted in the recognition that we all have sinned against God. And when we mourn with repentance and accept the grace of Jesus Christ, Jesus looks at you and me and said, Blessed are you that knows the, the situation and the condition of your hearts. So many of us can go through life not knowing the depravity that we're going through in ourselves. Jesus is not talking about earthly sorrows. He's talking about godly sorrows. He says they will be comforted. Perhaps the best example of this is King David. He was so well aware that he had sinned against God, man. He was in utter shame. He has this affair with Bathsheba, which is wrong in the first place, but in order to cover it up, we went through this in our Rated R series, but to cover it up, he had Bathsheba's husband killed. So there's infidelity in marriage. There is murder that has happened. And you know, he doesn't cover this whole thing up. David feels remorse, he feels guilt, he feels shame for what he's done, and he's mourning over his sin. A dangerous place that you and I can end up in is a place where you know that you have sinned and yet live without remorse. Y'all okay with this? Can I, can I go on teaching this? The Christian should never come to that place where you do not feel guilt, you do not feel shame because that moment is a moment that you are going down a road that is dangerous, that is, even David knows that. In fact, in Psalms 51, it's a Psalm of David as to how he really felt about his sin. It's his confession of sort. And he goes on talking about, oh, this is how it was. This is how, Lord, and, and actually go there with me. I want, I want, I want you to turn with me. I, I don't have it pulled up, but I want us to go there so that we can read it. Go, go to Psalms chapter 51 real quick. Uh, and I think this is a powerful passage of scripture that we can learn from. This is what he says. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Know that my God is a compassionate God. There's nothing that you cannot do that God has not seen and God did not expect you to do beforehand. 
Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. How many of you go through that in your lives? Unconfessed sin will keep coming up and up and up. Have you been there? I've been there. It means sleepless nights. It means this guilt, this shame, this this gut-wrenching feeling of everything around you is going to fall. Everything is going to collapse. You're going to be found out. Unconfessed sin is not going to give you sleep at night. It's not going to give you peace. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I need to talk to you this morning. He says, my sin is always before me. When I wake up, it's before me. When I go to sleep, it's before me. I'm dreaming about it. When I look at my kids, it's before me. When I look at my wife, it's before me. When I look at my kingdom, it's before me. When I look at my job, it's before me. I cannot get over it. It's like the world is falling on me. What can I do, pastor? Confess your sins to the Lord. It's very simple. There is somebody sitting over here that needs to confess before the Lord and confess to somebody as well. Whether, whether that be a co-worker or a brother or a sister or a wife or a husband, it doesn't matter. It's painful. It's going to be gut-wrenching. It's going to probably tear your family apart. But I want to encourage somebody, if you have sin in your life, a Christian cannot in his or her right conscience sit back and live with a guilt of sin when the promise is that I am enough for you. When God said, I have sent my son to die on the cross for you. And that is what David is saying. Lord, I have sinned and it's always before me against you. And only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you will have the right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb you taught me wisdom in that secret place he says cleanse me Lord Oof. in verse 9 he says this hide my face hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Oof. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my... And, and do you know that? And he says this, Create in me a pure heart of God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Man, this is amazing. A Christian, a believer that knows what it is to be in the... I've said this so many times and I'll say it again. A believer that knows what it is to be in the presence of God knows how it feels like to be outside of the presence of God. It's like a fish out of water. Ever seen a fish out of water? Does it lounge? Nope. You take it out of its comfort zone. You take it out of an environment that it's supposed to be in and thrive. It will struggle to breathe. It will struggle to exist. And I pray that we have Christians. The moment you walk out of the presence of God, red flags will go where you're like, ah, 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 beep, 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 beep. I got to get back into the presence of God because this is the place that I feel most secure. This is a place there is a fullness of joy. This is a place where I feel that the anointing and the power and the grace of God is upon me he says, Lord, do anything you want. Take me not away from your presence, oh God. I need to talk to somebody today. If you're not mourning like David is mourning over his transgressions, y'all, he says, blessing is far from you. 
You're wondering why you're not walking in blessing. It's probably because you're not knocking at the door of heaven. The hound of heaven is waiting to chase you down, to love on you, to, 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 to give you his grace and his love and mercy and to offer out that hand of healing. But there's this resistance that we have and God is like, I want to love you. I want to go closer to you. Oof. After recognizing my spiritual condition, it's important for me to come to that point of grief. Church, would you stand up with me for a moment? Hmm. You know, the number of counseling sessions that I've been in where I've heard this phrase, Pastor, I feel so bad about that sin. I'm not even sure I'm a Christian anymore. Can I share the truth with you? The truth is, the opposite is true. If you're a real Christian, if you're a believer, you will most likely feel worse about your sin than an unbelieving world. You know that Jesus hates sin, right? Jesus hates sin so much, and the more like him you grow, the more you will grow to hate sin. And I want to encourage somebody today. It's A.W. Pink that explained it this way. He said, it's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors of faith. It's the Lord, I, I sincerely need your forgiveness. My oldest kid is six years old to where she understands the difference between right and wrong. And oftentimes, we know the difference between a quick sorry, we want to move on, and uh, this is a heartfelt apology. Sometimes she'll come up to Sonia, my wife, and she'll say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and Sonia will look at her, her and say, no, you didn't mean that. That was way too quick. <laughs> you can make the argument and say, be quick to forgive, but no, sometimes that forgiveness comes with heartfelt feelings of sorrow and you would know when there is a heart come on wives you know what I'm talking about when your husbands mess up <laughs> they done messed up and they come up to you real quick and they say sorry you're like mm-mm dog has back, back back you go think about what you did come back this and, and, and God is asking some people man and, and this is so true. It's not the absence. It's the grieving over it. It's the, Lord, you know what? I, I don't want this to slide, God. Like David takes an entire chapter to expose himself. Like, like understand the gravity of that. This man that is after God's own heart, that, that God says, here's a man after my own heart. A king who loves the Lord. A king who's admired. He takes an entire hymn, an entire psalm to explain his brokenness and show you and me how important brokenness is in the presence of God. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about those who mourn the loss of something, but I want to twist it this way and I want to, I want, I want to encourage you. Blessed are those who, who mourn the loss of the presence of God in their lives. 
Are you mourning the loss of the presence of God? Do you immediately, are you able to understand the moment you walk away? Do your radars go off? Do your sirens go off? Do your flags go flying? The moment you walk away from the presence of God, is there the power of the Holy Spirit that draws you back in and says, no, 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 don't flirt with that sin. Don't even go to that place that you need to go to. Mourn in the presence. Blessed are those who mourn, who say, no, you can't go into that place anymore. You know what it did last time you went there. Let's not go back over there. You want to know what's going to help you mourn? I'll tell you. When you understand the gospel of Jesus. When you understand what Jesus did on that cross, you will not hesitate to lay the shame aside because he took on that shame. You think stepping out and confessing to sin is a shameful thing? Think about the shame that he took on to take on all our shame. The mockery he had to go through, but we are hesitating to come into the presence of God and say, God, I am poor in my spirit. I need healing, I need strength, I need restoration. Understand the true gospel message that he, God so loved the world. He loved you. He loved me. And there's somebody here that does not know the true love of Jesus. I want to remind you today. He loves for you. He cares for you. He gave his own life for you. He died on the cross. He took on your shame. He took on your burdens. He took on what you should have gone through. He took it upon you. And when you understand that, you'd understand how important it is to come into the presence of God and receive that grace and receive that mercy. You want to be blessed? Here's the second thing. Ask God to reveal the reality of your sin. The gravity of your sin. Stop like treating it just like, that's eh, all right, it's whatever. No, ask him to break it down. Ask him to ask, ask him to break it down to reveal to you who that sin has hurt. How much that sin has hurt the people around you. Ask him to, to reveal the parts of your life that the sin has hurt. Come on, just not people. Sin hurts us individually, personally. It hurts your job. It hurts your self-image. It hurts so much about who you are. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal every part of your life that that sin has hurt. You want to be blessed? Goes back to what I said first. Accept that your sin was nailed to the cross. It's already been done. He took all of that. The Bible says that he took all your sins and he nailed it to the cross. He said it's done. You don't have to live in that guilt anymore. I'm going to be very radical with this fourth one. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Before you share it on Instagram, before you share it with your friends, tell yourself that Jesus loves you. Tell yourself that you are worthy that you were once an alien, that you were once outside the love of Jesus, but Jesus loves you. Like, remember, Jesus turns the world upside down in this Sermon on the Mount. Or rather, he puts it right side up. He says, don't skip over your sin. Don't minimize it. Be confronted by your sin. Be confronted so that you can mourn over it. That you can take time to ponder over it. And let the mourning of your sin cause you to take it to the Lord so that He can deal, it, deal with it for you. Am I talking to somebody today? As the worship team just leads us in a few moments of worship. If you're standing out there and if you need prayers today, would you, would you step out of your seats? Would you come up? I'm going to ask a few people to help us in prayer. 
Chris, if you would help out, Job, and if you would come help out in prayer. Just Let's just give ourselves to the Lord today as we submit ourselves, as we surrender ourselves to the Lord. If you need somebody to just pray with you, agree with you, if you need to come, just pray with me for a second. I'm, I'm, I'm open to praying with somebody. Don't hold yourself back. If you just need to stand where you are, and if you just need to surrender your thoughts to the presence of God, there's somebody that's feeling dry today, spiritually dry, and you don't know the reason. I wanna, I wanna, I want I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the reason to you. Open your heart to asking the Lord to change you and transform you. Let the Holy Spirit just go right through you today. Let let Him speak to your heart today. Thank you, Jesus. I know this wasn't a message that, you know, you're going to feel good about today or you had a bunch of notes that you could have shared on Instagram. This was a convicting message. I told you it was an, it was an X-rated message. This is a message that Jesus wants us to understand for you to be disciples. He said he moved away from the crowds, the fans. And he said, now let me talk to the followers, the ones that are serious about this. So if there's anybody that's serious about this following Jesus thing, Take this to heart. Because he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening. We love bringing you the word on so many different platforms. We are so thankful for what God is doing in and through us. We'd love for you to subscribe so you don't miss out. And don't forget to share this message if it has blessed you.